you know, 20 years ago, you were going to be an IT admin at some big bank. You had these huge systems and you were actually installing it into a data center that you controlled. So like you were physically racking and stacking machines. So step one in premise deployment was actually like procure hardware. Procure very expensive hardware. This notion of building software, hosting it in the cloud, really opened up the doors for a lot of companies to consume software they wouldn't have been able to before. Google and Amazon and Microsoft have been really focused on incredibly deep security for a long time. Because of that, we think it's actually very consistent for an enterprise to say, look, like we're going to trust these infrastructure providers. Welcome to High Leverage, a series of conversations about scaling modern software teams through better tooling and processes. I'm your host, Joe Ruscio, a general partner here at Heavybit. High Leverage is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you'd like to suggest a guest or topic for this show, let us know on Twitter, at Heavybit. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, very excited today, joined by good friend and a colleague, Grant Miller, who, if you don't know, is the CEO of Replicated, which we're going to talk about. And also, pretty interesting, if you're building any kind of enterprise software, creator of Enterprise Ready, which is pretty much the premier guide for getting your software ready for the enterprise. It's pretty self-explanatory, I guess. How you doing? Great, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, no, pleasure's all mine. So today, I guess, coming from the Enterprise Ready, we're going to talk specifically about delivering software to the enterprise and I think perhaps most interesting or fascinating to me, and I think probably the listeners, is how much that's actually changing now after going on, I guess, 20 years of being about the same. And so maybe you could start. What's, what The term is uh, modern on-prem, I think, is what you've called it. And what, what do you think of when you think of modern on-prem software? Yeah, so... You know, it's it's interesting because it's kind of these combination of terms, right? People it's almost hear, like an anachronism, right? Is it on prem? Isn't that modern? If yeah. you, you talk to most people, yeah, modern on prem really sort of means the ability for enterprises to consume private instances of applications, and oftentimes it's SaaS applications that are sort of cloud native and deployed into, you know, quote unquote data center. But that's most often like you know an Amazon VPC, but it's just the enterprise controls. The VPC versus it being the vendor's account, so it's a kind of a new way to consume third-party software, and you know it preserves a lot of the security and compliance that you get from traditional on-prem software, but gives you the agility and the sort of advantages that you would be used to from a SaaS product. It's interesting because if you think about it, I mean, SaaS software as a service has probably been one of the most transformational kind of things that has happened in, in enterprise software in the last, again, going back 20 years when Mark Benioff at Salesforce and I guess you know, even you know, preceding that, uh, Paul Graham and the team at ViaWeb, you know, this notion of building software, hosting it, quote-unquote, in the cloud, really empowered or opened up the doors for a lot of companies to consume software they, they wouldn't have been able to before, right? And I guess then the question is, why with all the benefits... I mean the whole that whole movement. Why why now are people actually looking to bring software back on prem? Yeah, so I think if you look at why we moved to SaaS, right? You sort of have to evaluate like what traditional on prem looked like, right? And so from that perspective, like when are we talking? Like you know, twenty years ago, right? Okay. You were you were going to be an IT admin at some big bank, and you were managing an ERP system or a CRM, like some Siebel software or something, right? Right, or SAP and, or something yeah, like SAP, that. Right. You had these huge systems and 
the first problem was you were actually installing it into a data center that you controlled, maybe even a server closet. So like you were physically racking and stacking machines. It would take like months to get new new boxes provisioned. They were incredibly expensive, right? Like a terabyte of disk space at that time was thirty thousand dollars, like twenty years ago. And you know the same terabyte of disk space is now like thirty bucks on Amazon, right? Right. So, so step one in on-premise deployment was actually like procure hardware. Yeah, procure hardware before like install software. Procure very expensive hardware, right? right? And then once you procured it, like you had to install it and set it up and provide dual power supply and you know set up the OS and the runtime, and then you would get this 127-page install guide from the vendor about all the dependencies and you know how to write the JDBC connector and what databases to set up. And then you, as the enterprise IT admin, basically became responsible for the manual operations of every application that your IT team took on as an application. So you, know, you would have pager duty for who's going to be you know, managing the ERP instance for these hours, right? And if something goes wrong, you know, you need to get into the data center and you know boot up the new machine. And the, the software wasn't delivered as HA. It wasn't delivered as you know zero downtime. This is fairly primitive manual operation of software where you as the IT guy was you were SSHing in these machines, changing configuration files, like we call them artisanally, you know, crafted servers that only someone on the you know one person on the team knew how to manage and maintain and so that created just this nightmare of managing applications and it really made it so that enterprise software was only available to the largest companies some big bank right that could afford the operational overhead of employing round the clock follow the sun type support for all these applications so that drastically limited one the number of buyers that could actually use the software Two, because the market was small, that meant there were fewer vendors. And then three, it was just like a big pain in the butt to actually manage. Yeah, you know, I think the other interesting thing, maybe, and this comes from you know, my background, you know, in, in previous lifetimes, actually building those solutions, like closer to twenty years ago than I'd probably like to admit. <laughs> from the vendor side, there, there used to be this common wisdom, right, that the you could only make money selling software at like. Fifty dollars a license, like shareware, desktop software sure. back back in the day, or or seven figure deals, right? And that selling software for eight thousand, ten thousand a year, fifty thousand a year, or numbers that today sound pretty good for a lot of companies was a, a death sentence, and that's primarily because you couldn't afford to sell software that cheaply because on the vendor side you actually had to provide all the support, provide. All the post sales, professional services, everything required to actually get those solutions up and running, and then let alone like the costs of upgrades, right, and getting those down. And so I think SaaS has not only you know liberated the IT admins from that, but but also in, in many vendors' eyes th- themselves, right? I mean, historically, at least. Yeah, sure. I mean, Salesforce really changed the game when they introduced the SaaS model, right? That was a, and they called it on demand at that point. I think if you actually go back and you read Benioff's book, you kind of hear a lot of these reasons for why they actually decided to introduce software this way, and it was massively successful, right? They got incredible adoption. Really, I think the key innovation was. Centralizing the operation of the application into one team that was like knew how to operate it, right? Knew how to operate it at scale, make it available as a website. And you know, you saw what's happened in the last 20 years where that model just makes it so much easier for 
any customer and customer to adopt it. So it lowers the overall barrier to entry and start to use the software, and that creates more demand. It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of who ends up adopting these different technologies because now you can start to deliver a SaaS solution for basically any esoteric problem that's out there. Huge advantages for the market. But the challenge that you see is that over that time, you've gone from having 10 SaaS vendors to the you average, mean, you mean across the industry, ten SaaS vendors? Yeah, across the industry, SaaS right. vendors. You know, or even like you know, at a, at a specific company, you, know, you might have been consuming ten SaaS products fifteen years ago, and now the average enterprise, like Netscope, released some numbers about a thousand fifty-three different vendors that most you know the average enterprise has. So, so each enterprise company is is using in some form or another over, just over a thousand SaaS applications. Yeah, on average, and that's a lot of that shadow IT stuff that like a marketing admin has yeah. just you know signed yeah, the up finance for. Department using. Loves that, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all those all that expenses, you know, those expenses that they you see on someone's credit card, they just. Yeah, I mean, when we were, uh, I think when we were acquired, yeah, the finance team, I, I remember looking at our, and they were like, oh, what you know, what what SaaS applications are you using? And we said, oh, well, let me. Pull up a spreadsheet. It only has a couple hundred lines in it, and um, you know we were using an average of I think five or six SaaS applications per employee. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Which, <laughs> from the diligence process, quickly went into from a uh, you know we're just going to look at this to okay, these are all grandfathered in because it's it's going to take too much time. Oh wow, yeah. So then I guess that begs the question, and I, I think you alluded to this earlier. So this is yeah, twenty years ago, custom data centers, custom installers. Expensive hardware and people all over the place, but some things, and, and this is for when this all clicked for me when we chat about this previously. Some things have fundamentally changed since then, right? So what's what's now different that has changed those base assumptions? Yeah, well, so I think the most important piece is the recognition of the problem, right? Which is that as everyone has moved to SaaS and you have a thousand vendors, you're really taking your data. And spreading it across all these different vendors, right? So you're increasing the surface area of your data pretty dramatically. You know, you're talking several orders of magnitude in terms of who has access to your data. And sure, most of these companies might be doing the right things from a security perspective, but they're probably all not doing the same thing that your company would be if you're a bank, right? As an enterprise, you understand that your vendors are oftentimes, you know, the weak link. Right. And it just takes one person to expose an S3 bucket full of your data for it to go out into the world. Yeah, I mean the kind of the kind of interesting thing to me when I think about this is on, on on the one hand, cloud computing has been this is this incredible force that has completely democratized the ability to create a B two B company, and you can even see this in the in venture finance, right? Like you used to have to literally raise millions of dollars on a deck alone so you could get the money to get the hardware, to get the team and the network management and the operators and everyone to actually run it. Whereas now. I mean, you literally, if you're fortunate enough to, you know, have the means, like you don't need much to start an app, a bootstrap, right? Which is great and has caused this like explosion of innovation. But the downside that nobody talks about is if any company can be started by, you know, two people and a dog, the variance in security is probably going to be a lot higher than it used to be across solutions that all look on the surface, you know, with good design, like very polished. Yeah, it's exactly the problem, right? You think about you're you're exposing your data not only to the team at Salesforce, but it's also all the other thousand plus applications that you're running. Right. And then I think even interestingly, so at Salesforce or Slack, these like 
huge companies that are that are pretty well run in terms of security and compliance, and they think about this all the time. They've become these these centers of gravity where now there's these app ecosystems around them. Well, the application vendors get access to your account. And they're pulling all that data into their servers, right? So you might be as as Slack or as Salesforce, you might be able to ensure that that data is transmitted to them over, you know, HTTPS. But once you give it to a vendor, you don't know what they're going to, or an app in your app store. You don't know what they're doing with it. They're putting it on their servers. They're running analysis against it. I mean, this is sort of like the enterprise version of the Facebook, you know. Cambridge Analytica thing, right? Where it was an app that was exfiltrating all this data from the Facebook server. The same thing could be happening on the Salesforce or Slack side, and it's just one of these little apps that, you, that everybody auths into add emojis to their you know application. Yeah, that's someone with partial admin privileges just added because it, like you said, puts funny gifts into uh, the chat or something. Yeah, but it gets read access into all your Salesforce account. Right, right, and and then I think. Interestingly enough, too, I mean, more recently now, I mean, so there's the obvious just the security vulnerabilities just as a good steward of your customer's data. But now, as of a couple months ago, with you know the GDPR regulations in the EU, there, there's actually real, real financial uh, consequences if you if you have customers in the European Union. Yeah, I think that vendors are realizing more and more that this data that they've been collecting for a long time that they've thought about as a huge asset, right? Oh, we can do something with the data becomes a real liability. And they have to be very cautious about how they treat that because you know a lot of times modern vendors are not only just storing that data in their AWS account, but they're pushing customer data into intercom or into these other services that are managed, you know, a BI tool that's hosted. And so if you look at the number of subprocessors that your processors have, yeah, there's there's sort of a turtles all the way down kind of effect, right? Where exactly. You're the SaaS companies. You use SaaS companies, and they use SaaS companies, and there's probably even like and then they're know, logging some, it out, you know, and it's right. Like, who knows what you know? They they debug on verbose, and all of a sudden it's everywhere. Yeah, and so certainly I, I I think you can argue effectively that the sheer number and the and the kind of increasing variance over time and the quality of those teams and how they approach security ha- has made this problem worse over time. But it's certainly Always existed, right? And and it's certainly been a trade-off that the CIOs have always made, right? So they're saying we're going to give up, and, and especially you know back in the day, and and someone who ten years ago switched from building on-prem software the old way, moving to SaaS. I remember giving very strong speeches about FUD, and so that trade-off's always been there. So now I, I guess the question is, and and these can shift. If that trade-off's always been there, admittedly getting getting worse. And what's the other side of the equation that's that's changed that now is is meaning maybe things are swinging back to to modern on-prem? Yeah, it's a great question. And so you know, it really comes down to the problem we described earlier around running traditional on-prem software being this very operationally heavy and sort of manual process. Realistically, that's just how software was twenty years ago, right? Even Salesforce twenty years ago was a manual process to run it, and. What we've seen is that manual processes. It still is, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The Salesforce consultants are a thing. Yeah, but I mean, the, even the running the, the actual application behind, you know, behind the consultants, like the actual instances, you know, and sure, Salesforce is probably architecturally not super modern, so probably still people SSHing into servers and making configuration changes to databases for a specific instance. But that model of of managing and operating software has really 
been recognized as something that just doesn't scale well. And so you've seen the sort of web scale companies, think about Twitter and Google specifically, that had to solve this problem and they couldn't just throw more people at it. So right. instead they threw more software at it and they created technologies like Mesos and specifically Kubernetes that were designed to operate applications at immense scale by using automation as the key component to actually delivering applications in a way that is reproducible, repeatable, and incredibly reliable, right? So, you know, a lot of this kind of came from some of the original automation that you know happened at Amazon and then, you know, sprung from that puppet and chef, et cetera, et cetera. But specifically, what we're really excited about now is what's been happening, you know, from the the birth of Borg, which is Kubernetes, right? And so the key thing here is that we have been sort of delivered this new methodology for operating applications at incredibly high scale and reliability. And when you think about it, we're getting much closer to actually autonomous software, where we're writing a manifest that describes all the operations that are required in order to install and update and manage and scale and sort of create a self-healing application. And because of that, even it replicated the way that we deploy, you know, as parts of our SaaS product, there's no SSH keys on the actual servers. Like everything is immutable and deployed through automation. And that's the same is true at Google, same is true at a lot of modern companies. And so as you move towards people being able to write applications this way, what happens is you can deliver that manifest to an enterprise. And so instead of having to deliver a 127-page install guide, you can actually codify all of the information and, and knowledge about running that application into that manifest and then hand over the automation to the enterprise, right? So that core piece drastically reduces the overhead. Interestingly, too, the enterprises are likely not going to be installing that into a physical data center where they're racking and stacking hosts anymore. What we've seen is the adoption of actual infrastructure as a service, right? You know, the this is AWS or Google or Azure providing what is kind of become known as a VPC, a virtual private cloud. Right. And this is basically the ability to run infrastructure as a service and provision new hosts that don't have external facing IP addresses. And so you can run these only with internal IPs and hook them into a private network or you know, you can use a zero trust type beyond corp style model if you don't want to use a VPN. You can use client side certs. But the idea is that these machines can be restricted to only devices and other servers that you have configured to be able to access them through one of these, you know, access control means. Yeah, it's interesting. There was this uh, this progression, right? So first we had virtualization, and I, and I think also very kind of telling or, or, or foretelling, I guess. Once virtualization started to penetrate the enterprise, right? One of the kind of interesting or innovative use cases that popped up was this notion of virtual appliances, right? In which these kind of legacy enterprise vendors started to try to somewhat circumvent the process of delivering software by installing it into a base OS, wrapping that all up in a VM or typically one VM, but maybe a set of VMs, and you know, handing that off. So as long as you had a massive VMware contract and they had wrapped it up in VMware's virtual appliance, you could you still needed to buy the hardware, but you you could somewhat circumvent the painful installation process, somewhat help with the upgrade. Still, didn't scale. You know, I think to your point, measuring modern software processes and whether or not 
headcount scales linearly with it, and, and then that you want to, you know, as you 10x the scale of the software, you want to way less than 10x the headcount, right? So virtualization, then that begat the public cloud, that created public cloud, and then, like you said, VPCs came on, and I guess probably most interestingly to this, in the last now, I, I suppose, five years, you mentioned Borg on a Kubernetes, but this combination of Docker that lets you wrap up all the dependencies in a very kind of thin layer, and then Kubernetes that allows you to, I guess, two things, right? So from a, a SaaS vendor's perspective, this enables this microservice pro- proliferation while still making it completely operable. But I think you've made, and, and Replicate has made a pretty interesting observation around that, right? Is that it also then allows you to take almost exactly what you're operating as a cloud-native SaaS platform and, and basically deliver that quote-unquote on-premise to a VPC. So. Yeah, exactly. We, we think about the analogy of kind of drug discovery, right? So a drug might get designed for one purpose, but then you realize that it actually has this incredible other use case, right? And so Kubernetes was designed to help people deploy web scale software, but the realization that we made it replicated four years ago, and the reason we started this is we realized that containers and orchestration and scheduling would actually facilitate the installation, configuration, update, management, et cetera, of these applications in an enterprise you know, environment. Right, because um, Kubernetes is basically, and, and other orchestrators, right? If you're using Docker as like the kind of fundamental flat, application uh, portability, yeah. You know, right, right. Portability. That, the application layer, then as long as you have a, a orchestration layer that's compatible, and so we'll, we'll just use Kubernetes for example's sake, suddenly the vendor's operating environment looks almost exactly the same to the client's operating environment, which has literally never been the case prior to now. Yeah, exactly that. And, and so there's this interesting piece where more and more enterprises are moving to something like Kubernetes as the sort of data center operating system, right? So they can take one Kubernetes cluster and run a bunch of different applications in there. That could be applications that they use, you know, for serving their production traffic. It could be applications they use for internal tooling, but it can all live within this cluster and they can have a single way of sort of managing and maintaining those applications in a, in a very consistent and operable pattern. Okay, so then as a, a software vendor, right, a new software vendor, I, I probably am going to have some hosted offering in, in most cases, you know, for SMBs, SMEs. But now the notion is, if I'm using Docker, if I'm using or if I'm if I'm a cloud native application, yeah, then in theory, it shouldn't be much work for me to wrap this up in such a way. That it can be deployed uh, in a private instance in a, in a private cloud. Now, is this something that I would typically manage? I mean, there are vendors that, if you're a large enough customer, you you sign up for an instance of the software. But my team is still running it. My team's still scaling it. Even it might even be in your VPC. Is is that what we're talking about? Or are we actually enabling IT admins, IT operators to run this? Yes. So we think that if the vendor has access, it actually invalidates the model. And we think that it invalidates the model because the goal here is to reduce the surface area of who has access to your data, right? And so as soon as you give a vendor credentials to SSH into these machines, I mean you're potentially exposing more data because now they can, you know, go from one box to another. Yeah, you've so, given them local access right. at that point. And so what what we think the key here is that the you know you said your team manages quote unquote well like today we do management through automation and so that management shouldn't require physical access or or virtual access to the actual underlying resources it should just require 
the ability to deliver this automation that can then be applied. So, you know, that's what we focus on at Replicated is delivering that automation and then providing some tooling around, hey, if things go wrong, like how can I get a support bundle? Hey, you know, I need to license and entitle this. So we try to provide all the other tooling that's required to deliver the software and things you would be building yourself if you if you kind of went down this path on your own. Right. I guess like deliver it. Upgrade it, monitor it. I mean, that's fairly straightforward to envision how that could be done. I mean, you know, home, phone home kind of activities. There's some more kind of interesting questions, though. I mean, how do you handle like stateful services, right? Like databases, or you know, if, I, if your application runs a, a Elasticsearch cluster or Cassandra cluster in the cloud. I mean, how do you handle getting that that taken care of on prem if you can't access it? Yeah. So stateful services are definitely one of the more complicated pieces of this. And so from there's a couple different Perspectives we take. Number one, we see the introduction and evolution of more cloud native databases. So you think about things like CockroachDB, Yugabyte, all these other folks that are designed to sort of run cloud native. And you know, they're Postgres wire compliant, they have all these other features and things you would want, but they're sort of designed to run in this system. So that's one really important you know, transition that we think the, the market will make over time. Another piece, right, is like I mentioned that. A lot of times, these enterprises are actually running your application in a infrastructure as a service provider, and so they have access to things like RDS or you know any of these other sort of managed services that are provided by the actual cloud provider. And, and some people think it's a little bit inconsistent that an enterprise would be willing to trust the cloud, right? A cloud vendor. But not be willing to trust their product. They think, oh, they use AWS, so they should use us. Well, it just turns out that like it's a lot easier to get the security assurance that you need against one of the five largest companies in the world than it is against your hundred-person SaaS company. And Google and you know and Amazon and Microsoft have been really focused on incredibly deep security for a long time. Just at a level that that no other application vendor can actually get to. Yeah, I mean they they literally have more people working on that problem than most SaaS B two B SaaS companies will have employees. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and and so because of that, we think it's actually very consistent for an enterprise to say, look, like we're going to trust these two three infrastructure providers. Also, because it turns out like. Infrastructure is a little bit harder to deliver as an automated thing. There's no robot that I can buy that will like, you know, lay the bricks and mortar for building my data center and setting up all the racks and doing all those pieces. But it turns out you have automation that deploys your application that I can just run in my own Kubernetes cluster. So like that seems to be a easier thing for me to buy from you than it is to buy that robot that doesn't exist. Right. And I guess then it makes sense that you could you could set up your application for, especially if you have pretty earlier point. There's really only three, or, or we'll even, I guess, kind of charitably say five large vendors you would have to target with their their uh, hosted database offerings, right, or their hosted stateful offerings to have coverage, which is really no different from again back when you were doing on-prem and your installer, and you would say exactly what version of DB2 your JDBC connector supported. Right, I mean, and so that's today, right? And we, but we see the market moving towards just having these fully portable cloud-native databases and services that become part of how you run applications at scale, right? Like if you're running Kubernetes today, you know, you, maybe you're running a Helm chart that's a Postgres 
version that's a little more HA, but generally you're going to be better off long term the next five years moving to something like Cockroach, which is designed to run that way from the beginning. Right, cloud native. So another question along those lines, or maybe from a different side, is you know, one of the great things about going on back to this whole kind of central notion of trade-offs and where the balance maybe now lands as a SaaS provider with a multi-tenant solution, or even if I've gone, you know, doing like the the kind of sea of single tenant managed instances, with that access to the data, I can see lots of things. Particularly now, I mean, especially we're five years into the the kind of rise of AI and specifically ML, where you know there's this notion, and I've you see lots of startups pitching this notion that hey, with this data, we can access it and learn it and train and do, and be smarter because we see it. I mean. You lose all that though if you if you bring this on prem, right? You do lose the ability to centralize all that learning. What you, from one angle, the solution to that is actually what's called federated machine learning. And so, federated machine learning, think about it as how your phone does predictive text when you're typing. And so, those models are not like sending every keystroke back up to some centralized cloud to tell you then what like you're probably going to type, but instead it has an algorithm that's delivered in the keyboard that says. You know, hey, here's what is most likely to happen. It does send a, you know, some learning back up, and so it's learning on every individual phone, and then centralizing that learning. So you can do that exact same thing in sort of an enterprise edge node architecture, where each of your enterprise customers, you know, has algorithms and all the sort of most recent thing you've learned. Potentially, if you're running a, a centralized service that you know is doing this for some number of SaaS customers as well. And you can deliver them down updates to the most recent algorithm. You can also learn from each of those edge nodes and then send some you know amount of the learning back without ever exposing the data. Right. So some uh, either synthesized or anonymized data, I guess, back. Or, yeah, or I mean, you summarized. Yeah, it's kind of a summarized. Like, here's what we actually learned. There's also interesting things you can do in a new technology called multi-party computation, which we think is a really interesting sort of use case for private computing, particularly around machine learning. So we think there's opportunities there. Yeah, I mean, but ultimately, like that data that you're running that that off of, you know, I think it's not really your data, right? It's it's the enterprise's data, right. and so when you centralize it and you're learning from it. You're taking something that's it's not really yours if you're you know running the SaaS service and you're trying to extrapolate all this value from it. And sure, your terms might say that you can do it, but I don't know that every enterprise wants you in that position of of where you're. Yeah, I, I expect it's one of those things. Probably particularly with the good procurement departments, you probably have different experiences with how okay they are with it. So, I guess what's interesting, and we've mentioned replicated. Obviously, you you believe in this. This whole movement to the extent you're building a company around it. At a high level, what does this look like? Is this kind of like is this sort of like a virtual appliance, but with you know Docker containers and targeting a Kubernetes install? Is this something different? What's what's how does this take form? Yeah, so Replicate has really evolved. When we first started, we modeled a lot of what we did after GitHub Enterprise. So you kind of mentioned earlier that you know the idea of delivering a VM, sort of these like OVAs. And that was what the first version of Replicated Really took on. So, like, look at GitHub Enterprise. I mean, if you're not familiar, GitHub Enterprise is about half of GitHub's revenue, and it's you know basically a so valued at about three point two five billion. Roughly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you put a number on it, but so you know, GitHub Enterprise was this really, I think, a great example of someone that they they just decided to put a great experience around managing and installing a piece of on-prem software. Yeah. So, I guess essentially, you have like 
a Rails application and a relational database, probably MySQL, and then you know something that manages a whole bunch of Git repositories on the file system installed on a single OS, right? Right. That's, that's that was the first version of it. Eventually, they made it possible to scale it out to do two hosts, so you could spin these up and there's a little more HA. But we looked at that and we took some inspiration. And that inspiration was like you need to have a great enterprise IT admin experience for uh, installing and configuring an application. The first version of Replicated was was container centric, so we never shipped a VM, but instead we shipped what we could kind of call today a multi-node software appliance. It was designed to always scale horizontally, but it included the administrative console sort of as part of the cluster, and as such, you know, became what you know we would think about as an appliance. Like it was sort of operated independently outside of the traditional or just like the whatever the process that the IT team was using to manage their other software. It was right. its own sort of experience. Yeah, but I guess a horizontally scalable appliance in the sense that you would give it some number of servers for a whatever, and it would just consume what you gave it, right? Yeah, exactly. It scaled out really beautifully. And you know, from the vendor's perspective, we were providing them with the ability to, every time they would ship to the cloud, they could deliver to what we call the replicated unstable channel. So we provided this concept of release channel management. So you could have... Okay, so, sort of like Chrome's channels. Yeah, exactly, right? So, so you would have your cloud version, you could you know, be doing CICD, and you could have a version that's deployed you know, 20 times a day to, this, to your SaaS product, and you could deploy that same thing 20 times a day to your unstable release channel. And then you could run additional testing. Generally, what most of our customers would do is sort of, you know, be watching, you know, the the SaaS version, find something that was within their slows, right? So they would have set these service level objectives for error rates. When they found iteration, maybe after a major release, a couple then point releases after, they would promote that to beta and then promote to stable. Within Replicated, we would actually provide the licensing and license their enterprise customers generally against that stable channel, so they could push this release with release notes into all these enterprise environments. The enterprise could be set to automatically update, so they could actually have the update automatically applied. Or if they want, they could have this set to actually let me read the release notes, you know, and then click the apply button, and then this would scale that update out to the to the multiple nodes. I mean, you'd be running the most recent version, you know. And then we we always added some additional, like we call enterprise ready features, things like, hey, you need to hook this into LDAP and Active Directory, and so we can run LDAP sync against your user table, or you need to have a really great audit log. We can embed this audit log into your application. You want to have a support bundle that you generate when a customer has a problem. We provide that tooling. Do snapshots. We provide that tooling. Basically, all is, the is things. It's a surprising amount of boilerplate that goes into delivering an application to the enterprise. Yeah. So, if you look at a lot of the larger, more traditional software companies that have tens or hundreds of products, they have what they call a common services team. And the common services team is basically responsible for building the common services across all these different applications. You know, because it doesn't make sense for every team to reinvent LDAP yeah, I mean, integration, right? So you know, LDAP, and it's not just authentication. There's like access controls, ACLs. Yep. Like you said, there's audit logs. There's yeah. We, we wrote around a lot of this. This is what EnterpriseReady.io is all about, right? Is you know a lot of these features that you need for enterprise adoption, not not just for on-prem, but just also for just general SaaS adoption, right? Like literally any kind of software, SaaS or on-prem that you want to sell to the enterprise. Yeah, it kind of needs this like standard set of call it like. Table stakes features, right? Expect procurement to ask about these things. Yeah, and you know the the challenge is that we see a lot of times vendors will 
deliver those features, but only as a result of some vendor security questionnaire they had to fill out where they needed to like check a box to say they had an audit log. But they often didn't think about what the end user actually wanted, right? What's the purpose of the audit log? Like who's going to be using it and how do they use it? So they would oftentimes deliver something that was subpar in terms of quality. And so the goal of Enterprise Ready was to describe these features in enough detail that you could actually build something that was useful by the enterprise IT admin, not just something that checked the box. Right. Okay. So is that, I mean, we've got containers and Kubernetes. Is that... Yeah, so sort of standard replicated platform, you can use different schedulers. You can use you know, Docker Swarm. You can use Kubernetes. We wrote our own stuff for, you know, in the very beginning. And so it really would operate and deliver this like, you know, multi-node software appliance. That's changing a bit now. So what we've seen is kind of introducing the like second version of Replicated, and the second version of Replicated is really targeted at the idea that more and more enterprises are actually running things like Kubernetes, right? And they have a way to they have a process, a pipeline for deploying applications into those clusters. And so what we've built at Replicated now is a way to deliver deployable applications. So not actually deliver the the multi-node appliance, but deliver the assets and the configuration options for the customer to then build into their own existing deployment pipelines. Think about like a GitOps style workflow. That's kind of what this was designed for. Right. You know? So that so you mean then instead of having like a specific set of servers that I Dedicate over to these multi-node appliances that can then be remote updated when opted into or whatever. Actually, hooking into like a more central use, like for whatever cluster, right? Like actually, just drop into the same kind of deploy release that internal proprietary applications would be in. Yeah, exactly. So generally, you know, most companies have a process through which they deploy internally written applications or open source components. And what Replicated Ship, this is the new product, sort of is focused on is enabling third-party application vendors to distribute their application in such a way that it fits beautifully into that same pipeline that their enterprise customers are using. We sort of say like that GitOps-style pipeline because we think that is fast becoming the easiest way to sort of you know think about infrastructure as code and all these other components. And so this is really third-party applications as code. Yeah, it's, I think, kind of an interesting thing to consider. So what what do I gain what, what, if I'm moving from this, you know, multi-node? Hey, you just need to have a VPC, and I'll get some instances on it. By moving to this GitOps flow for third-party software, what, what additionally do I gain by doing that? Yeah, so it's really about what the enterprise wants, right? And so we think about it as meeting your customer where they want, and the thing that they're trying to do here is create a standardized process that is more repeatable. It's less one-off. It's less snowflakey, and so. What you're doing is saying, like, okay, uh, as an enterprise, if I run all applications through this exact pipeline, and they all have configuration stored, you know, in GitHub, and there's dual control in terms of like a PR is made to change a configuration update, and then it's applied in this like same pattern, like which we, has been a very successful pattern for software development. If we can do that for third-party applications, what it does is it creates less overhead for actually running these applications because I don't have to learn some new process. I don't have to learn some one-off admin console. I don't have to remember where to go to update this application. But instead, every time there's an update, I get a new PR to update that application. And then I can have it deploy out through Spinnaker or whatever other deployment I'm using. So So at some level, this goes back to reducing the number of headcount I need to operate 
all the things. Yeah, exactly. If you think about you know twenty years ago, you needed three IT admin to operate one application, you know, around the clock. And you know, today maybe with replicated multi-node software appliance, you need you know one IT admin to manage fifteen or twenty different applications because they're all a little bit different and kind of one off. In the future, we, we see the ability for an enterprise to manage hundreds or thousands of applications as private internal versions of those applications with one or two IT admins, right? And so what we think happens is this really lowers the barrier for who can actually consume quote unquote enterprise instances. And so it doesn't have to be some big bank or this hot crypto company that are using these applications, but anybody that cares about the security and the privacy of the data that they're holding can run private instances of applications this way. All right. Well, I mean, that's that's interesting to see like where Replicate has been, where it's going and modern on-prem. So I, I guess just thinking about all this, maybe in closing, you know, right now it seems like there's some obvious places, so heavily regulated industries, so finance and healthcare. I mean, it's as much ground as I think the public-private clouds are making or public clouds are making on compliance. There's There's always, like you said, trusting them versus trusting the unwashed masses of, of SaaS vendors. But where do you see this going in, in the broader industry? Like at what point has this like come full circle and back? Yeah. Ultimately, you know, we don't believe that it should just be heavily regulated industries that have, you know, access to to secure and private applications. We think everyone should have this access. It really comes down to what does it actually take operationally to implement this? Because you know, if you think about today, like most companies make the decision pretty easily to use SaaS applications, and that's because they're just so easy. If it was just as easy to deploy a private instance, you know, into your VPC, but maybe you don't even think about it as a VPC, but it's just as easy to deploy this fully private instance that the vendor doesn't have access to as it is to sign up for the SaaS application. Well, then why would you sign up for the SaaS application? Why would you not use the private version? And retain that security and that control because you're not going to have to do anything operationally additional in order to do so. I guess that actually leaves me one more question. So, typically today, the ability to deploy on premise is, and partially this is because, you know, absent something like, like replicated, kind of the cost to do that, like what GitHub had to invest to build GitHub Enterprise, for example, from scratch. The, the on-prem aspect uh, for, for companies that offer both is a lever to get someone into a much higher price plan. Do you think there's a point at which that stops to be the case? And, and obviously there'll be other levers that will get people in those higher price plans, but that the, the on-prem version becomes available across the, uh, the pricing spectrum? Yeah, eventually we don't think it'll be a. We think it'll be the same price. I mean, same price. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I guess right. Okay. It's actually no more work, right? You're just using the same automation, and maybe it's cheaper because the vendor's not actually supplying the hardware. You know, they're not supplying the infrastructure. The enterprise actually supplies their own. So yeah, the margins are much better. The right? Margins are better. So yeah, we don't. We you know, and again, I think you'll see price product assortment through feature-based entitlements versus. Like on prem, it's like you know it'll be the LDAP piece. It'll be these other pieces that differentiate the price plans versus the ability to deploy it privately. We hopefully someday it's the same thing as like, well, why would I not put HTTPS? I'm not going to make that a security feature that you pay more for, which used to be the case, right? Exactly, right. (laughs) So you know that would be our vision is that eventually everybody has access to this and it's just a default because. You know why? Why should we distribute all this data so so far? Why not just run it privately? It makes we think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, great. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for coming by today. Very thought-provoking stuff for sure. I'm sure some of the listeners will be, be interested. Check out enterpriseready.io. And thanks again, Grant. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening to this episode of High Leverage. If you'd like to suggest a guest or topic, let us know on Twitter at HeavyBit. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out our library. It's an amazing resource for insights on developer sales, marketing, product, and general management from leaders in our community.